Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Alex, uh, Alex Collins, as your host for today's episode. Please do go easy on me. This is my first time hosting since kind of coming back, you know, half coming back as I have been doing. Um, but I have a great episode lined up for you. Um, I'm joined, first of all, by Lorcan, as I often am, and then also by a guest, John C. Olson, who I think I scouted and tried to get on the pod going as far back as September, if I remember correctly, kind of telling him whichever pod you want to come on before now and the end of the year, please do. So yeah, it's great to finally have you on, John. Yeah, no, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming. I'm looking forward to it. And we have a great episode lined up. First of all, we're obviously going to be speaking about the 2-0 win versus Brighton. Um, then I think we'll speak a little bit about the Champions League group, a, you know, a review um, and a reflection on it, as well as looking ahead to the round of 16 draw versus Porto, um, with that draw happening today at time of recording. And then, of course, also looking forward to Saturday evening's game versus Liverpool, where we may be joined or will be joined by another guest. Um, but before all of that, let's, you know, do as we always do, the pot shot question. So I was a bit lazy. I didn't really come up with one today. And I've also been lazy in terms of not even writing it into the doc. So I'm looking on Twitter where I asked the question. I think we're going to go. There were lots of good questions and we'll probably answer the others over time. But I think we're going to go with Manus's one. And he said, if you had to plan a bank heist, who would the arms expert, the getaway driver, the mastermind etc be kind of like oceans 11 but i think we're going to adapt it to michael saying he wants to steal this but actually you only choose arsenal players for each of the roles and justify why they would suit each role so we i don't think any of you guys prepared for this either so i think maybe (laughs) the best thing to do is maybe let's work through this as a team rather than each having one group kind of because to be honest i don't even know the different kind of roles that I'm immediately going to say, like, we want Odegaard as the mastermind of the heist. You reckon? I was already, I think that was the only one I had in my head and I thought it'd be Arteta, but I guess he's not, he's not a player. He's not a po- I was thinking Jorginho, actually. <laughs> mm. I'm fine with all of those options. Uh, I would say Elneny as well, but I think he's too pure of a soul to, to rob a bank. Elneny would be a terrible mastermind, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think you have to hold out Elneny and then also... Saka, like, there's no way Saka would be participating in this. He's like, he's. Too- I don't know. I could see Saka kind of being involved in this. He's got that sly killer vibe about him. But I, I'm also not sure what kind of heist we're doing. So, so <laughs> there's lots of questions up in the air. The one guy I definitely think we need is Declan Rice, just for muscle. Yeah, I'm not sure what job he would do. I, I kind of want Martinelli as the getaway driver. I think he's. I think he'd be like. An impulsive driver. <laughs> Is impulsivity what you want in this scenario? Yeah. Someone who's like, sh- I, someone I wouldn't want is Gabriel Jesus uh, or like Zinchenko. I'd be quite scared of I them. <laughs> no, we absolutely do not want Gabby Jesus. Do you remember the video of, that Jorginho took of him in the parking lot that one time? He was yeah. still getting his driver's <laughs> lessons. We cannot have him as the getaway driver on this. I promise you. It, it, it's, it's, it's gone bad as soon as you leave the bank. Yeah. What would Saliba's role be? Because he's actually quite smooth. I think he he, he could kind of be... What are, are we robbing a bank? I assume so. So if you had people going in, who are the kind of people holding up the other people? I feel like... You want Saliba, Rice, Gabriel. I feel like that's your... <laughs> yeah. My problem is I feel like Gabriel would fuck up in the heist <laughs> some way. But like, it would be one small fuck up. He'd do everything else right, but you can't fuck up at all in a heist. So I would probably drop Gabriel 
Maybe Martinelli is part of them. I wouldn't have him as the getaway driver, though. I'm not sure who I would have. See, for for me, I'd probably want Martinelli as the uh, the arms expert, just because you know he is he is a, a finisher. He's a gunman. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's let's keep him in his area of strength here. Not be shoehorning him in somewhere else to to accommodate others. <laughs> as he's so used to doing perfect okay i think we answered that terribly um but we'll move on let's maybe get in a bit more and answer the you know the purpose that we're on here for to speak football do that a bit do a better job of doing that all right let's start with brighton so on on sunday we hosted the Zerbies. brighton who sat eighth in the table at the time and we're on a 32 game scoring streak in the league meaning that they'd scored in 32 straight games. I think we hold the record for that with 55 under Wenger right at the turn of the the millennium. Um, so yeah, no surprises that we were expecting a strong offensive test and maybe be a little bit less dominant over proceedings than we've become accustomed to in the Premier League. But in actuality, we came out of the games flying and almost created a massive chance within the first minutes. That set the tone for much of the game, to be honest, as at least, at least as I saw it. Um, and we enjoyed arguably our finest in possession performance of the season, um, at least up to the point of getting the ball in the back of the net, where that was a little bit more of a of an issue. Um, nerves and maybe mainly the dread of being sucker punched started rising by half time when we, you know, had a great half and still not scored. Um, but thankfully, we managed to score early in the second half through a Gabriel Jesus header. Um, yep, we remained largely in control of the match there on out. If not in terms of possession, then certainly in terms of territory and defensive containment. Uh, with Brighton only mustering their first shot in the 64th minute. There was a scary moment later on where, thankfully, Pascal Gross missed. Potentially undoing a 1-0 lead before we ultimately put the game to the bed through Havertz making it 2-0. So yeah, with that summary out of the way, let's break the game down a little bit. I think I'm going to start with you, Lorcan. And let's start with our out-of-possession approach, which was no doubt a huge factor in our ability to contain Brighton offensively. Um, how would you compare to this fixture from last season, that 3-0 loss in the run-in? And what were the differences in our success this time? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's no, um, it's no secret that we're one of, if not the best, out-of-possession team in the league. Um, and I think this was another really strong showing. Um, I think it was really similar to the to the game that we lost 3-0 at home um, back in whenever it was May or so. Um, the game plan was really different. Brighton obviously build in their pretty distinct 4-2-4. Um, the main difference from their side was that it was a bit less rigid. And I think that's that's explained by the Colwell absence. They were playing um, Dunk, who's a right-footed um, centre-back on the left. So they didn't have that pass that they could funnel straight away um, and as a result it was Gilmore who was one of the two pivots who sort of came out to a left back position there was a bit more basically a bit more rotation but other than that I think our structurally our approach was the same we had our two advanced midfielders in, in Odegaard and Havertz sort of manning their pivots um, Havertz tailing Odegaard and Odegaard covering Gilmore and then running onto their or jumping onto their left centre-back when the ball moved itself left um, and shadow covering Gilmore in the process. Um, other than that, what well, the two other players that make up the box, their number 10, who was Lalana, and their striker, who was Evan Ferguson. Luckily, we had Rice sort of hovering in a, in a, in a, 
in a zonal role, ready to jump on Lalana, and he did that with much success. As you know, it's not terribly surprising. And then, as we'll we'll touch on, I'm sure at some point, our centre backs uh, together sort of handled, especially Gabriel hand, handled Evan Ferguson really well. But I think we've really dominated them with the profiles that we have in our eleven, which is to say, athletic ones. Uh, Havertz really good at sort of lane blocking. So whenever he does jump onto that second pivot, he can also disincentivize central passes, that sort of stuff. Um, so I think ultimately it was very similar. Um, I put out a tweet saying the difference between the two fixtures was Rice and Colwell, which may be a bit simplistic, but I think just in the level of execution, um, same overall game plan, we were just able to execute it a bit more, a bit better this time. Anything to add there, John? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really liked the the tweet from from Blurcon that you know the the, bi the big difference was was Rice and Colo, and I think touching on that point of, of Rice's athleticism and just the general athleticism across the squad, I think there's there's a certain level of of tactical quality that you have to have in order to stop Brighton, and I think you know as we mentioned they did have some issues that they typically wouldn't have, obviously right footer at left center back. You know, they have to adapt with all these rotations, different positions, the guys just moving all over the place, changing up what is a typically very recognizable system from the Zerbe. Um, and but what the difference is is that we just have athletic freaks that it just it's impossible for I guess I shouldn't say it's impossible, but it's very difficult for even the best technical teams in the world to to kind of do anything against us. I mean, just kind of penned them in. I mean, it was very reminiscent to me of the United game and not that they were playing the same way in terms of style and build out because Ten Hag's got his own thing going on there, but just in terms of territory and, and not letting them really progress out of the first phase. Yeah, no, I certainly agree. I think I think the big thing that where that physicality really did show is just in terms of how the centre-backs handled Evan Ferguson. I think he was completely out of the game every time it came to them. Either Saliba was kind of pushing up right on him and getting the ball first, or Gabriel was basically clattering him, <laughs> despite his own frame being big. But I'm also interested just in terms of how we managed to contain them, because even, even with that level of athleticism, right, I don't think we've really seen Brighton kind of pin back even when they're in possession and they're in the way that they were in this game. They really struggled to build anything meaningful against us, um, even when they had the ball in a more settled manner and managed to build out of their half. Do you think that had to do with our team's like understanding of what I want to call like group marking responsibilities being particularly better than other teams who have spoken about us being, I would say, probably the best out of possession side in the world? Um, that goes beyond just like the physicality when you need to win the duels, but also just understanding who to mark. Because I saw them especially trying to figure out things deeper in with trying to switch markers. And there's one that I remember where I can't remember who it was on the left, but he was trying to come in to kind of pull Saka and then create an opening. And Saka just let him run across. Rice was there telling him to kind of hold his position and just Rice picked him up. I think that sort of understanding just meant that Brighton struggled to build entirely against us. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I, I think the other important factor is not just that you have such a, a sound tactical model from, from your manager, but you also have really intelligent decision makers on the field who understand not just at their own individual level, but also at a more macro level across across the 11, uh, just to know space occupation, how to respond to certain movements. Um, and, and as you said, that showed, I mean, the, there were all sorts of weird rotations in that game from Brighton that, that I was not really expecting to see. I think the only time I'd really seen them build in the three this year was 
Liverpool. And granted, I hadn't watched them a ton in the time since then, but it's just not something you typically have seen from Deserby. And so I think that response from that team just shows, I mean, what we kind of forced them into. I think as well, because people draw similarities between the way Villa build um, and Brighton build, and there's a lot of similarities. I felt much more comfortable in us containing Brighton's box in that they form a box by abandoning the last line and have their forwards essentially one forward and the 10 come deep. And I think that ultimately wasn't successful because of like what we've spoken about, the physicality, we were quicker in getting to those balls. Um, whereas when one of our centre-backs was tasked with stepping up to the fourth member of the box in Villa, there was still a striker on the last line in Watkins. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm reiterating the point at this point, but it, I think it was just basically the, the physically overwhelming aspect, which helped from a structural point of view for containing Brighton. Just before we move on, I want to go back to one point where you which you touched on earlier, Lorcan. You spoke about Havertz being, you know, sitting inside the block. I know when we first signed Havertz, this was a doubt we both had, partly because we hadn't really seen it, right? Um, whether he'd be suited to being one of the central two guys in the middle of the block. Um, I'm interested what both of you guys actually think of how he's kind of adapted to that role and, yeah, basically how he's done there. Like, I mean, as you said, we didn't really expect it, did we? Um, and I think that was more so having not seen it um, than than anything else. Um, but it, yeah, he just, I mean, it, it's crazy because Shaka was part and parcel to how good we were defensively last year, um, just in how smart he was and, and also his physicality in duels. But uh, like Havertz is better than that. Um and, and that applies in transitioning from sort of the hybrid press into a man-to-man -man phase, but it also applies to, and I, I noticed it in this game as well, when we're in our so-called settled defensive shape, we don't just sit in a 4-4-2, we sometimes sit in a 4-1-4-1, which is much rarer to see. It, you know, it's much more often that we see that jumping into a press. Um, and I think that's basically because in Rice and Havertz, you have... You can basically gamble. You can, whenever you're defending in a settled, in that settled four-one-four-one shape, you can quickly spring. And I and I saw it a few times springing into action and, and try and steal the ball um, with one of those midfielders who's higher than if they were to be sitting next to the six. Or you can just go back into the four-four-two. Um, so yeah, I think long story short, I think Havertz is a huge part of why we're so good this year, which is crazy to say. I really didn't expect that part of it um, going into this season. Yeah, and I, I mean, like it, that's a that is a crazy statement, honestly. That I, I don't think really anybody expected. I mean, I was probably on on the copium a little bit over the summer when the when the links first started. And I'm like, oh, he'll be really good as a left eight. Like, come on, guys, like this will work out. Just trust Arteta for once. Like, come on. Um, but yeah, no. Our, once again, Arteta's just you know hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think he he he's known what he wanted to use him for, and whether that's going to continue is, remains to be seen. I mean. Hopefully the striker shouts aren't aren't completely dead because we have liked what we've seen from him and in limited time there. But yeah, I mean it, it's it's remarkable what he's been able to do there. I just wanted to point out also that I think having two physically imposing pivots is obviously you know very important. Just on its face, makes it difficult for the other team to 
to access the middle and you know get the balls into the half spaces but you know obviously covering everything's important but also having just a smart front too in terms of you know gabby J and odegaard they're also playing a huge role and you know being that first line preventing some of the things that like just it's it's an additional layer of, of block central access and i said the, the four of them together do a do a phenomenal job i i don't really think there's anything more to say than that but it's it's not just Havertz and rice but it's it's all four of them no absolutely i think that point rings true we were speaking earlier kind of you know on the one side being physical freaks on the other side being really organized and understanding and it's really I think it's clear one of the things Arteta thinks from from that out-of-possession approach is he's looking for the physical freaks who are also just incredibly intelligent. And I think that obviously applies to both Rice, Havertz. Havertz makes us so flexible in terms of how we can defend situations, as does Rice, of course, more in terms of controlling space, whereas Havertz kind of making decisions, right? Um, and then you've obviously got Saka, Martinelli, both incredibly diligent. And then I wouldn't call Martin, I wouldn't call Martin Odegaard a physical freak, but he obviously has that intelligence. And then Gabriel Jesus actually on rewatch, maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but he would would have been my man of the match. I think in terms of how we controlled control them, and even from sort of four one four one situations, just Gabby Jay's ability to kind of anticipate, change his body, make sure he's covering the exact angles, knowing when to do it. I think is. It's, it's incredible to actually watch just how switched on that guy is at all times and how incredibly good. I think we can speak about, you know, speaking even about as a getaway driver, you wouldn't want to make in the decisions. But when he's not on the ball, when he's needing to stop situations, I think he's actually rarely, rarely makes the wrong decision. I think you can kind of compare even to like Eddie, who I think people do see as a really good presser and stuff. And I think it's more that he he's not a bad presser. No one in this team is a bad presser. He's a good presser. But he, it's just because he's willing. Sometimes Eddie overruns. I think Gabby has that incredible ability to know when to push up and when not to. But yeah, maybe we should move a little bit away from um, the out-of-possession stuff. And John, I'm going to come to you. What do you think made us so dominant in possession? Because that's what really impressed me, or at least was most enjoyable to me, particularly in the first half. Um, yeah, on Sunday. Yeah, honestly, I think I think I might have a little bit of a different take here, but I thought Deserby. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this from a, a bright now to possession perspective. I thought what Deserby did was was kind of strange, and what he did was having both Gross mostly man marking Havertz, and then Adingra mostly man marking Zinchenko, and having one player being man marked is already sometimes you know alarm bell start starts ringing. Having two is just like okay, this this has to be manipulable, and you know in some way, in a number of ways. And so, I, really, every good move that you see, especially in the first half, comes down to Zinchenko making a run forward, you know, clearing out the midfield, or Havertz sitting in the last line while Jesus abandons off of it. Because there's just numerical superiority, there's dynamic superiority. I mean, it, there's, there's really not much more to say. I think Brighton made it especially easy for us, and obviously Odegaard took advantage. Um, Jesus took advantage. You know, we we created chances really for fun, um, but yeah, I thought it was just strange what they were doing. That it, it didn't that seem like an optimal game plan for them, and and that's why we had so much success. Can you take us through a little bit of how we managed to create those superiorities? So obviously, you've spoken about how we were able to manipulate them, but particularly what we did to create those situations. Yeah. So so as I mentioned, I'm gonna try to pull out a couple of examples here um let's see i think 
like like I said, you know, you have Zinchenko making runs forward. Uh, there was one moment in the in the half that I think because uh, they're they're basically at a four four two block if there's no man marking, and so if Gross, who's one of the pivots, and then Dingra, who's obviously the right winger, you pull them out of the way. You have one man in the midfield. You have a front three. So generally, when they were pressing. You could leave Zinchenko high and leave Havertz high, and so then if Odegaard drops in, you have a five v four, and so that's already on its own. And then if you bring in Raya, we didn't really need to. Um, that that's it's just simple positioning, honestly. I don't know if there's really anything much more than that. And then once you get to the final third, I mean, it, it's a little more complex. I think depending on where Havertz was, sometimes when he was deeper, I, I don't really know if I. If I was our tenant, I would have just told him stay in the striker position, and let Jesus move, because if Gross is just going to follow you everywhere let him follow you everywhere. Um, but yeah, I think a less reliance on Zinchenko, which is also why I think we had such success down the right. We're so biased down the right because everything was going through Rice and we know about his, you know, I, I guess penchant for, for playing with his right foot because that's what he's really good at doing. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, it's just, I don't really know if there's specific patterns that we had to use because once again, it was just positioning. And from there, it was the same things that you typically see from us. Yeah, I I'd I'd echo that completely. I think if if you rewatch especially the first half, um you'll see Zinchenko just darting around literally anywhere. Um and a Dingra following him. Like I had to pause it within the first five minutes because so I was like, is that actually a Dingra? And he was I mean, it was really weird. Um and yeah, like from a Brian perspective, I I, I completely agree. I think we've already touched about touched on um the relevance and significance in a, in a macro perspective of Erdegaard dropping deep. And I think the last few weeks has seen us a bit more ready to embrace that. Um, and obviously we were calling for that a bit more and to build quickly, which obviously invites defensive transition situations if we turn it over, which I think kind of explains why maybe we weren't seeing as much of that early on in the season, but maybe are so now. Um, but yeah, I think like fundamentally, uh, Brighton's plan was very manipulable in the same, in the way that John said, um yeah oh, oh I, uh there were a couple um moments i think in the fifth and the sixth minute and then right before the half there were a few moments where raya there were some nice moments from raya just standing on the ball inviting bringing about those man-to-man um cues and then hitting it long into actually the chest of our wingers um and that was a nice sort of alternative route to get up to the the last third that we, we already know that we do quite well um but yeah, I think it was just, it was really easy, wasn't it? Okay, I think I agree with, with much of that. Um, what do you guys make of our inability to capitalize on our dominance? Just in terms of really, we almost created so many big situations, big chances, but we really struggled to actually even get shots off in those situations. What do you guys make of that inability? There's something that's kind of, I think, been there throughout the season, but there were bigger problems in terms of our attacking performance before then, and now this seems to be the the last remaining sort of piece that we still need to kind of figure out. I mean, it's I'd say it's a, a mix of things. Um, regarding high turnovers, I think those are characteristically sort of chaotic moments. Um, I'd say someone like Odegaard isn't very... I mean, we saw on, on occasion twice. The second one was hilarious. Um, but if you're that one-footed, maybe, uh, you know, he's not someone who you would want running, dribbling, and then shooting with the ball. He's very much someone who you want at the edge of the box and those sort of one-touch actions getting on the end of things. 
Um, so I suppose there's that element. In terms of in possession, I still think for as good as we are, it seemed to be with the ball um, and the upturn in fluidity, I still think we rely on box entries from wider areas, um, which aren't as threatening as box entries in more central areas. And that's just because of how good our wingers are and how good they are at beating their men, especially Saka. But um, it's also worth noting Martinelli's good at doing it down the byline, perhaps less so when cutting inside. Um, but yeah, and then I, I don't know, variance. Like, I think we were over, actually overperforming expected goals for the first bit of this season. Now we seem to be underperforming it. Um, someone like Gabriel Jesus leading your line for as good as he is, and he's sensational. Um, it's not terribly surprising in some situations. Not that he was actually at fault for anything yesterday, funnily enough. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely, I don't really have one singular answer. Um, the most relevant one from a stylistic and, and preference point of view probably is the wide box entries, um, just because it leads to those crosses that can sign up, kind of go anywhere. And we don't have a, a pure number nine, like a like an awesome hen. Yeah, that that's what I was going to touch on, because you said Gabby J wasn't really at fault for anything. Let me, let me say, I already said, I think he was man of the match for me with ease. And I spoke about him out of possession, but I think in terms of his facilitator play, I think this was one of his best performances for us. Absolutely. And that really stood out to me on rewatch. We, we spoke about Udegaard dropping deep. The guy following in was was um, Gabby J kind of creating those overloads and then being able to turn them into, you know, attacks, dynamic attacks so quickly. I think even just... Lots of really nice touches out and around the final third just to kind of keep everything moving. So he was absolutely phenomenal. But I did notice we created a lot of these situations where the shot doesn't actually come off. And I watched a lot. I mean, I think the first one in the first minutes, then there was a couple ones a couple minutes later. There were about three ones in the first half alone where it was like goal mouth sort of access in terms of getting the ball there. And... Every time Gabby J was too slow. It's a weird one. I was watching them and I almost feel like he ball watches in an attacking sense. Like he's waiting for the pass and then he's he's not anticipating I need to be in this area to go. He's kind of watching where the ball comes and then reacts to it. I kind of thought like if Osimhen's there, those are the sort of things that A through maybe just being bigger frame, more physical, but also just that like extra little bit incisiveness of reading the play gets onto the end of. So that that's sort of the problem with Gabby J is on the one hand you had all of that facilitates of play and obviously the out of possession stuff, but then also just when we get in the middle there, it's not even that he's missing the shots, which he often does, but he's just not getting onto them in those moments. Obviously Dunk was phenomenal, but but yeah. I think as well, it's the same with last season. One of the things that's kind of characterized us was our box occupation, how many players we had in the box. But a lot of that has got to do with dynamics and rhythm and how you arrive in the final third and how you're crashing the box and, and hence why we saw a lot of cutback goals last season. But that's sort of to contrast it against a team that has, um, I, I was going to use Haaland as an example, but he actually doesn't really crash the front post. But someone like an Osim Hen, whenever you have a, a striker there, and, and we saw it for Havertz against Luton, whenever you have someone starting there as a striker, and I know Havertz wasn't nominally playing striker against Luton, but kind of was in that phase, you have someone who a lot of the time crashes front post, brings someone with them. And if you notice, Gabriel Jesus doesn't really do that. Um, both You saw it for his goal. I mean, corner situation, a bit different. But both him and Havertz tend to go back post. So you don't have someone who can generate gravity in a second, as it were. It's a lot like the threat is kind of coterminous with 
the dynamics at play, um, which sometimes you want rhythm arrive like when you're in the final third. Um, but yeah, that's just a, a slight point. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. That you can only brute force it so much, I think, and then there has to be a certain level of, like you said, rhythm, dynamic occupation, the timing. Everything just kind of has to be there because bodies are good on their own, but sometimes it's not enough. And I think yesterday, you know, and in times in the past, we've seen that it, it's. Martinelli does it. Martinelli crushes the front post like the other two don't, and I think we saw that for his chance. He like skied it um, for the Saka one. But he does tend to do that. Um, obviously, he starts from left wing, so we don't see it as much. But when he's in central zones, he does crush the front post. Uh, and then one other thing, just on the opening goal, the, the set-piece routine, I think that was like the fifth corner of the game, and then we proceeded to get another four or five after that. But we literally did the same routine like every time. That like There's typically some variation, and we've been good about that. But I think, once again, there's just some issue that we must have identified with Brighton that the f- starting at the far post and then everybody flooding during the run up and the, as the ball flights in and then just Jesus peeling off to the back post and you see him just free unmarked uh, for, for the goal and somehow the ball comes up to him and it's, you know, it's a can't miss chance. And then the next one, then there is somebody there, the ball gets to him and he has it as well. It didn't score off for this, on, on that one. But yeah, I mean, set pieces, sometimes if, if open play isn't working for you, then it's always nice to have, have that to fall back on. Because uh, Alex, you and I have said like our brain switches off at set pieces. I didn't even I didn't even notice that, um, but it d- also doesn't surprise me. Uh, but yeah, that it, it's it was the same against United. We seem to be doing the same thing every time, and finally benefited it from it at the end. But yeah, I didn't even notice that. See, I read that great piece by um, Jake Fox, and I'm trying to pay more attention now but obviously i only rewatched the game today so i, I didn't really focus in and hone in on that part because i was looking more out of possession and stuff but it's something we probably need to improve on but i, I what i really like is just how there's a lot of um just as a side point but there's a lot of like cohesiveness in terms of the game plan trying to obviously be just dominant at set pieces but then also a lot of what we do is just being able to get those set pieces, create set pieces. And it's just a way of pinning the team in. And, you know, through repetition, I think one of the things Jake was saying is that often we'll do the same sort of thing over and over and over and then switch it up. Um, Yeah, just to create these chances. And it's kind of just, it's just very Arteta at this point, just the way in which we dominate rather than necessarily control and hold possession. We just take a shot. It doesn't even necessarily matter if it's like a low value shot. I think sometimes people get frustrated when we take these, I do get frustrated Maybe I'm just, you know, grew up on Wenger and trying to create the perfect goal. But I get frustrated when I see us taking these like random hopeful shots that just, you know, bounce off like the foot of a player just out for like a corner. But it's actually incredibly valuable. And it's a, it's a way in which we just break up the game and keep packing on um, momentum in our, in our way while breaking up their game. There was that one moment where we got a corner from Gabriel Jesus hitting the ball and it was like an awful decision and Van Hecker was shouting at the referee and I was just thinking like oh he knows how good we are from corners like (laughs) Uh, okay um is there anything else we need to say maybe maybe we should speak about because I know you wanted to touch on this Lorcan is um the gross chance that you know almost made it 1-1 despite us being so in control of the game do you think this is a systemic issue um maybe I'll start with my take I think we've got to the point where 
I mean, Brighton is a good side, right? And like I said, they got their first shot off in the in the 64th minute. I think we did kind of concede a little bit of like momentum to them after we made our changes. I don't think the subs were great. Uh, obviously, in the end, we got our second goal. Involvement Trossard from deep and then Nketiah got the assist for Havertz. But, but I, I think like the reality is that it's a good team. They had one sort of biggest chance. And I think we've just got to this like Petro step Petro State Pep era where any like moment of like weakness just feels like a, a systemic issue where I just don't believe it is. I think it's just something that happened in the game. And it, because ga- football is such a game of variance, it could have been 1-1. And in an era where we're not fighting like this behemoth that is Man City, we just go, oh, okay, that's fine. But because <laughs> because we are fighting Man City, I mean, I know they're having a bad season, but that's the sort of mentality that we're, or mindset that we've kind of had to embrace, had forced upon us actually. It feels like it's it's a systemic issue because it's not perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak to that a little bit. I mean, City on their own, whatever, on, on Saturday, had were basically just on cruise control up to nothing and that game slipped away from them. I mean, sometimes it just happens. And I think as much as you want to, you can't control everything. And that can be very frustrating at times when you're like, why, why is this happening? Like, it, it's just as as a fan, it's it's not even comprehend comprehensible. Like, you you can't understand it. And I, you know, you you bring up the V word, which is which is variance, and I love using that because it just explains the unexplainable. And I know people don't like to accept that sometimes things are just out of your control, but sometimes that that is just how it is, and there's nothing that that can be done about it. Yeah, I, I think if Gross does score that and it, that game ends 1-1, um, there are obviously loads of different like conversations going on on the timeline. And, and it is, as John says, it is just a question of variance. I think the questions that would have been asked were how were we not able to capitalise on how dominant we were? And I think that in itself is, is a worthwhile question because we still have the issue of the player taking the most shot in our in this team is fair enough it's our striker but it's Gabriel Jesus who doesn't score from them and our best shot taker on this team is Martinelli who's getting like way less shots than some players in the league who are getting loads Um, and that's and then you start like whether that bleeds into Havertz 8 Havertz playing at number 8 discussions I think it does I think Martinelli doesn't perform as well when Havertz is playing there why why do you think that is just out of interest? Um just I mean Havertz had I think Havertz had twenty-eight passes uh yesterday. Odegaard had fifty-five. I think that kind of says enough. You know, I'm not gonna get into semantics and like midfield philosophy, but Havertz is not a passer. Havertz is not someone who can facilitate Martinelli's game, uh get that pass in behind um in short. Um which is fine because, uh, as I was going to say, we opened this conversation, we, we opened this podcast saying Havertz at number eight was part and parcel with how good we were defensively. Um, and that's true for yesterday's game as much as it is in general. So it, it is a game of trade offs in, in, and the profiles you have in the 11. But it's at least, I, I think it's a worthwhile talking point. I thought. In the, the Nottingham Forest game, which was the first one of this season, my first thought was, oh my God, we can't get our wingers close to goal. And I think we've introduced some dynamics um, 
and players have got more comfortable and stuff such that that's not as much as an issue as it was all the way back then. But it's still somewhat of an issue in my opinion. I mean, I think that the big point for me is just like you said, Martinelli's not getting enough shots and he, he is our best finisher. When you're relying on really your two central occupants, your two box crashers, if you even want to call them that, being Jesus and Havertz, who, neither of whom are notoriously good finishers, you're going to fall behind teams like Liverpool, who, you know, Salah gets five shots a game and Nunez, for all of his faults, will get three or four shots a game. He'll manage to put a couple away of those, you know, every once in a while. But you have to get the guys who can take the opportunities, the opportunities, or else they really don't mean anything. You can throw up the XG numbers all you want. If guys cannot take those chances, it doesn't mean anything. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. You got to get Martinelli in, in more scoring situations. And I, you know, as much as I want OC men, I'm sure we'll talk about that later <laughs> next summer, that I still hold out hope that, that one day Martinelli could be the Arsenal number nine. But that they, that's definitely not going to happen right now, as, as unfortunate as it is. See, I mean, I, I share those sentiments in terms of, in terms of the fact that we need to get Martinelli central, more central at least, um, and and that obviously a, a lot of the I think this has been Martinelli's career at Arsenal. Really, he's he's always been the the water carrier in some sense of like the tactical stuff he performs is ultimately at the cost of his own individual success in terms of scoring, in terms of even assisting stuff, right? But do you guys not think that he should maybe be doing? a bit better I, I i don't really have an opinion here but it is something that interests me and i think it is a sentiment that is growing um certainly within within the fan base that you know he should be getting at least two or so shots off a game i don't think he even kind of gets those numbers um and i know i know he's from wide right and he's also not someone who can really cut in with the ease that Saka can or take the same sort of shots that i think Saka can from those wide zones but do you think that basically it's just purely Purely on him, purely the dynamics of, you know, not having someone who really overlaps that much in in Sinchenko and then now Havertz. I was I was asking also because obviously Havertz not as much of a parcel in terms of volume, but also and facilitation. But also I think someone who is maybe now entering these these zones that Martinelli would have liked to kind of cheat into himself. Do you think that all of these things mean that Martinelli it's purely like not on Martinelli at all? The reason why he's not getting off these shots, he's He's not generating this XG or whatever. Uh, I think on a on a micro level, you can point to particular things he did. He could have done better. Like there's a chance where I think it was Zinchenko played it to him outside the box and he took an extra touch and he wasn't actually able to get a good shot off. Or on the break when Saka was screaming for it and he didn't play that pass. But I think if you zoom out a little bit, I still see, and, and John talked about this vision of him as a number nine, whether that happens or not. Like, we don't know. But I, I still see him as that Suarez-type profile. And the fact that we, as top, of, I mean, we're top of the league, we rely on him as a retention-heavy winger who you can pretty much, you can give him the ball and you know he won't lose it, I think speaks to how good he is generally, but also how much he's taken on and how much he's learned um, in from Arteta and, and Arteta's obviously molded it into somewhat of a com yeah a complete attacking profile and I think you can kind of see he's not that touchline winger who can go both ways but at the same time I'd forever be reticent to assign blame to him just because in my eyes the way I'm looking at it he's kind of doing something that is not his strength yeah 100% and I, I think you know we talk about Martinelli being a nine and 
people might be saying, well, why do you think that? And I'm sure it's been touched on before, but it's the box movement. It's the finishing ability. But you look at the situations that Martinelli gets into with Arsenal, and part of it is that we use our wingers as outlets in transition a lot. And so he's often the one running in behind down the wing to receive, and then we'll get the ball. But then, you know, there's typically someone there, so he has to pass it. It's not like he can get a shot off there because, as you mentioned, sometimes it's the micro level that he can't get, get his feet sorted out or can't cut in because, you know, we have his, he has his issues with dribbling. Um, but, yeah, it's those situations in transition. And then, as we talked about, that he's out in the wing. You can't take advantage of his box movement if he's not even in the box. So, you know, it, it's, it's not on him in terms of usage. But, like you said, the micro things can. Obviously, he could always do better. But at a macro level, I think sometimes you can't really assign blame to him because he's not that type of player, even though he does his absolute best to be what Arteta wants him to do when he's out there. I know we're probably running a little bit late for time, but before we head into the next section, but this is obviously what you always get with me as host. So I want to ask, what do you think we can kind of do to create the conditions? Not as a center forward, because I agree with what you said earlier, John, that's not on the cards, at least not for this season. But I do think that there's still a lot that you could get using him as more of an inside forward, right? How do we kind of create those conditions? Do you not think, I mean, the the Havertz rotations, even, even you know, we've been seeing them recently, but even against Brighton, we saw some promising moments with Havertz kind of going out wide at times. Do you not think we can make more use of that, not necessarily to get the most out of Havertz, but to get now more out of Martinelli? Is that is that not something we could do? But that, my question in response to that is why put Havertz out there at all? I mean, obviously we talked about the out-of-possession stuff, but you're further, comp- in my eyes, you're further compromising what he does provide in possession to even have him out there in the first place. And I, I think the answer is you know, put Odegaard out there on that side and let Martinelli be the off-ball runner that he wants to be. Let him make the runs in behind. Let him cut in. Let you know everybody else kind of take care of the space occupation on that side and just let him move closer to the box and then eventually you know shots will come to him because he's just in a more dangerous area so your solutions owed left eight yeah i think there's also it's worth saying that there's an element to which this has been not solved but improved upon in recent weeks in this upturn in fluidity uh zinchenko helps him on that side there's been a few occasions where where havertz has, has put him in i think our willingness to drop Odegaard and build up and kind of stretch the distances and, and invite a level of risk has meant that these games are a bit more transitional, fake transition heavy, um, which has led to him having those more dynamic game situations compared to, as I said before, like a forest game where we're completely camped in the opposition half and he's just remaining on the touchline. Um, we'll talk about the relevance of, of Champions League football, but it kind of mirrors that in inviting those more transition-heavy situations that perhaps we were trying to avoid at the beginning of the season. But I think on a, on a fundamental level, I, I do think having Havertz in that role, I, I agree with John, is not conducive to, to Martinelli getting shots off, if uh, the least controversial statement possible. Yeah, I, I, agree with, I agree with... I think I was actually moving towards the first part of what you were saying in terms of what we're doing now. And I think it's probably a conversation that is too long. I've been not on the pod, so I've been wanting to have this one in terms of like the tactical changes over the course of the season we'll surely have at some point. But I mean, I do see more potential even now to get Martinelli in, especially now with how we're using Rice on the right at times. 
kind of allows, especially with someone who is as just able to move from side to side as Gabby is, kind of creating these conditions. And I do think, obviously, everyone, we have a lot of players that are best when they're in these central zones. That's that's an indisputable fact. I think that's that's true for most top teams, top players, you know, nowadays in the front six. But it's about, it's about also using rotations in a way that it makes it really hard for the teams to kind of pick up on these players when they get central. And then through having a lot of players that can kind of move into the outside zones at times, makes it less predictable, means you can get players just moving in dynamically at times. But but I think we shall take a break. Um, and then, yeah, we'll be back just now after what Seb would call a something jazz, sweet jazzy jingle. Okay, cool, cool, cool. We're back after that sweet jazzy jingle and we're switching things up around a little bit. So we're going to speak about the Champions League a little bit later. But for now, we've got our guest for the Liverpool preview on with us and we're going to discuss Liverpool. So welcome on, Sam. Thank you for coming on. Um, thank you to, to Logan, John and Alex. Um, I'm a big listener of the Pot Shop podcast. So yeah, it's a pleasure. And yeah, hopefully I can contribute something um, yeah, to the podcast. But yeah, thanks for having me on. Perfect. Yeah, and I'm looking very, very forward to this discussion. So this is Samuel AP1, I think, underscore yeah. from Twitter, if you know him. It's one of the best livable accounts out there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we're going to jump straight into it, speaking about the game. So, Sam, can you actually just take us through um, Liverpool so far this season? You guys are obviously doing better than I think many were expecting ahead of the season. I know you guys were expecting to bounce back a bit, but, but doing better. And yeah, basically how you've seen the season going so far and... Your thoughts ahead of Sunday? Um, so, yeah, obviously, Liverpool, when the season first started, I think most Liverpool fans thought that, you know, we can probably go for third, fourth, you know, um, we when we when the transfer window finished and obviously we didn't um, get in uh, Lavia, uh, Saicedo, um, yeah, we kind of all thought that, yeah, it's, it's best that we probably just go for that top four. But obviously, we have started the season um, practically on fire. It, 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 it doesn't feel that way, to be fair. But obviously, the results say that we've started, we've started the season on fire. Um, obviously, our team isn't fully uh, made up yet. Uh, you know, there's a few defensive issues. Uh, there's a few positions to that hasn't been filled. There's a few positions that have been filled, but maybe need to be refilled again. Um, and so, yeah. So, yeah, as the season's gone on, um, you know, we started it with a 1-1 draw against Chelsea. And that that game probably was the perfect game to describe it. But I think, you know, not very good in build-up, or not as good in build-up as the top teams. Um, very, very reliant on um, transitions. Uh, very, very reliant on, I, I don't want to say individual balance, but it is individual balance. Um, very, very reliant on uh, spontaneous moments. Um, and so, yeah, and so yeah, as this has gone on, you know, we've won games. Um, we have um, we've played a few good teams. I think the the Tottenham game was a game that I think probably not just Liverpool fans, but I think probably a lot of fans um, across the Premier League probably thought, right? you know, where we're doing something. And so yeah, I think just to summarize the whole the the the, the whole season thus far, I think it, it's definitely been a good season, you know. But I think as a Liverpool fan, I'm kind of here waiting. I'm probably I'm probably stuck in anxiety. I think you know. I think I see my team and I don't see a team 
that has a tight, you know, rest defense. I don't see a team that has, you know, different options in the build-up. I, I don't see a team that can even break teams down in a low block. And so we have all these problems, but at the same time, you know, we're second, I think, a point of Arsenal. Um, and so, yeah, results-wise, it's been pretty, pretty good. But I think we're seeing a team that's obviously still developing. Uh, we're seeing a team that, although it is still developing, there are like a few things that are like... Uh, in my opinion, maybe like uh, tainting that development. So, for example, you know, we've got players who are here from the previous, not regime, but the previous um, Liverpool version who probably won't make it to the Liverpool 2.0 that we're trying to get to. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's how I'll summarise our, our season. Um, still a lot of issues, still a lot of issues that we've had for, for most of Klopp's tenure, but at the same time, we're finding a way. Um, I think you know, we're able to milk the fact that we, we're able to milk the fact that we can, um, you know, generate transitions at a rate that I don't think any other team can. Um, and I think um, our individual billions, our, and to be fair, our, our morale of the squad is super, super high. You know, I think after last season, Klopp um, definitely went back into the changing rooms, or well, not changing rooms, into the drawing room. Sorry, um, if that's the analogy, that's that's the word that they use. Um, and obviously, you can tell he's the the squad is riled up for a fight. Um, every single game we give our one. It's a stark difference from last season for sure. But I think most of our issues, I think all of our issues, will probably stem from the fact that. Tactically, when I look at other teams, uh, you know, City, um, you know, obviously Arsenal, I do think that we just, we're lagging just a bit. And I think the distance between us and City and Arsenal, I think it's it's substantial and I think it will probably widen as, as the season goes on. But yeah, I hope I didn't sound too pessimistic. But yeah, I think that's my analysis of, of Liverpool thus far, I think, yeah. In just to jump in, would you say, because... I'm just looking at the league table now and we've been talking like waxing lyrical about how good Arsenal have been out of possession um, yeah. and, and for, just from a defensive standpoint in general we've conceded 15 goals in 17 games so have Liverpool but I, I from memory I remember seeing a stat that it's almost like double the expected goals allowed would yeah. you say that you overperforming relative to sort of the eye test has got to do with the difference makers that you have in the box, i.e. Allison on one end, you know, maybe Van Dijk and that Salah Trent on the other. Uh, I think, yeah, I think obviously there's, of course, yeah, I think we're definitely, you know, we're not, um, uh, we're not, we're not, um, we're not able to keep teams out in the way that we should to as a title team. I think obviously with Allison, obviously, and to be fair, even, Van Dijk, Konate, Matip's been playing well, even Simicas on that defensive side. I think, especially, I think we, we have a lot of, we have very, very good, or I think Klopp has coached a very, very good defence regarding whenever, you know, defenders are on the the last line. So, for example, you know, Liverpool are probably 10, 10 times, maybe I'm being a bit too pessimistic here, but probably a lot of times during games, we are cut open and teams are able to face forwards and, you know, run us. And I think in those situations, like Van Dijk, you know, maybe jockeying to maybe slow down the attack or maybe Trent, actually his recovery runs, you know, um, 
with uh, with our goalkeeper, his ability to just react to sweep. So I think, yeah, definitely. I think definitely we do we do have a, a lot of um, difference makers in the important areas. And I think, yeah, we are we are. But I think at, at the same time, I don't know um, because with especially with someone like Allison, for example, like he's shown in previous seasons that he can maintain this level of performance. Van Dijk, maybe. You know his injury did get did get the best of him, but I think he's shown in the past that he can defend, defend, defend. Last line, last line, last line. So I think, I think we are we are um over over performing, but I think at the same time, you know, um I think maybe it's maybe not not entirely intentional, but I think it's it's intentional to a degree at least. Yeah, you can rely on it to sort yeah. of somewhat keep happening in a way that we we maybe can't. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so just on that, John, I know you watched um, last season our, was it 2-2 against against Liverpool at Anfield? And you had some sort of ideas about how the, maybe how we could improve and how the game will unfold on Sunday. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in what that is. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, when I, when I heard that I was going on this pod, I was like, okay, I got I to gotta do my preparation. I got to make sure I'm, I'm knowledgeable, know what I'm going to talk about. Didn't really know what we were going to talk about, but I, I knew what I wanted to talk about. And so I was like, okay, I got to go back and rewatch this this 2-2 because I don't think... I Last season, I rewatched pretty much every Arsenal game, and I think this one I deliberately avoided because A, it felt like a loss at the time, and B, like, that, that second half was just so unbelievably dreadful that, like, yeah, it, yeah whatever. Like, it's in the past. <laughs> we can't change it. Um, yeah. So, you know... And, and I say that because the first 35 minutes of that game were, you know, some of the best I've seen Arsenal ever play at Anfield. And so to, to have it on that way was obviously really tough. So I went back, watched it. Um, yeah, I've got some thoughts, but, you know, Liverpool, what, what it comes down to for me is Liverpool have a remarkable ability to kind of suck you in to their game and to, to make it really a basketball game. And, and while we've thrived in those environments at points throughout, you know, the last two seasons now, Liverpool are still the kings of the transition. They they are so unbelievably good at at generating those opportunities, whether it's off of a you know a defensive set piece or you know, they're just launching the ball up the field. It's a second ball, it's innocuous, and all of a sudden then one flick on Salah's run at Zinchenko and it's like, what what just happened? So for me, you know, it's gotta be big. You have to be able to slow those things down first and foremost. And if we can assert some sort of control in the game, take advantage of the matchups, Martinelli versus Trent, I'm looking out for that one. I assume we're going to have Gabrielle backing up on Salah again whenever we do press. I mean, those are the things where we just have to assert our superiority and um, and kind of and kind of go from there. And and most importantly is whatever the crowd's doing, you just have to stay in your lane. There was like two 10-minute spells Um in, in last year's game where we just kind of fell apart. And one of those was like right after that Jaka incident with Trent and then Liverpool scored. And from there, then things got bad. And then right at the end of the game, when, um, when uh, uh, Firmino ended up getting that back post header after Trent, not Zinchenko. So you have to avoid those spells. If we can assert control on the game, I'd be pretty confident. But obviously, it's more complicated than that. But but yeah, that's that's really the big thing. Limit the transition. If the, there's three words to remember, limit the transition. 
Um, I was also going to ask if I can just quickly um, button there and just ask a question to the Arsenal fans is that obviously last season you came to Anfield um, and I believe the midfield three was uh, Party, Jacka, and, and Odegaard. Obviously this season is a bit different. Havertz, Rice and Odegaard probably again. Um, do you guys, if if the game, because I think Anfield, I, I, I don't think Arsenal can entirely um, avoid a transitional, you know, basketball, um, basketball match situation. And by that, I don't mean obviously the whole game will be like will we'll be like that. But I think there will be moments in the game where Arsenal will have to obviously dig in and have to maybe play Liverpool at their game. And obviously this season, I think I've watched probably almost every Arsenal game. Probably, yeah, I think I've watched every Arsenal game. But yeah. Um, and obviously the thing that sticks out to me is that uh, Rice, Havertz, them two in particular when it comes to the duels when it comes to physicality intensity sweeping uh, especially rice those vertical jumps that he that he gives you guys from from that sixth position when you guys are um um pressing teams is is insane so I, so my question is is do you guys think that if it does come to that next week will it will are you guys better well of course you are better quick but do you guys think um you could essentially play Liverpool at their own game basically I'll just yeah quickly say I think uh, I agree with John in this that I we need to like the micro stuff would be I don't want us to go man to man um I don't want to invite those sort of situations that the crowd could feed off of um that the kind of play into Liverpool's hands and for me it kind of highlights the the most gaping hole in our in our in our starting 11 which is the lack of kind of a, a true number eight because I think for these sort of games we've seen it against City as well the way we get our f- foot on the ball is by playing Jorginho as the number six um, and we saw that work against a, a big team like M- Man City and then we saw it not work against another big team in Chelsea and that's because we went man to man and were ultimately exploited by that so it's like in doing that that means Rice goes to the number 8 but then it me- lends you much more susceptible to those defensive transition moments if you have Jorginho on the counter rather than Rice so i think i i don't know i, I do kind of expect us to play Jorginho um and Rice at the 8 um because the alternative as you said Sam was would be to play Havertz as the 8 um and then i don't know i don't think you do get your foot on the ball as much and then it can be a bit more end to end especially if L- Liverpool look to press um, the other side of that would be that Liverpool haven't looked to press for a lot of this season um, and are kind of passive in that first line, aren't they? Um, but I, I don't know. I, I would tend to think that you would in, in uh, Anfield. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think it's not to bring Partey into it, but I think it is a game that he would start um, at the six and Rice at eight and but key in this game I, I suppose is avoiding those really I don't know dual heavy situations even if we are better equipped to to deal with them yeah so that's kind of interesting that um both Lorcan and um John have said that they I believe I think John said it as well um that they would prefer I think to be fair as well I did I have seen a few a few Arsenal fans um say that um they would prefer if you know they set off in the middle block and didn't you know engage in high man-to-man press and obviously i just want to know what what because obviously from my perspective although yes you know there's always the threat of trent 
there's always the threat of you know someone in our back line uh, Van Dijk you know maybe with Allison could you know uh, pick out you know pick apart your um, man marking structure but I don't know I think you know Liverpool especially especially um, in these past I'll say these past um, few games I, I believe it's let me say Palace, Sheffield United and Fulham um, in particular. Those three games that we played, we we, we won them three. Uh, 4-3 Fulham, uh, 2-1 Palace and 2-1 uh, Sheffield United. But I think, are you guys not worried about the fact that maybe if you do give, you know, Trent, if you do give uh, time to turn and face, um, and obviously, again, of course, yes, you will be compact. Yes, you will be, you know, in the mid block. But are you not worried about the fact that, you know, from distance, you know, uh, from deep, uh, our first line, our, yeah, Van Dyke, Trent, etc., uh, are able to, you know, pick out players? Because I do think as well, our... Our our rotations are somewhat fluid, especially. Um. So yeah, just that's that's a question that I would pose to the Arsenal fans. Yeah, it, it's a it's a good question, Sam. Um. And and my response would be, I think I am more worried about Liverpool in transition than I am Liverpool from subtle play. And yes, you still have trem- you fair. still have tremendous threat if we do set off and do allow Trent, to, you know, as you mentioned, time to turn, face play, and that's that's when he can be really just devastating and unplayable. Um, but like I said, I am less worried about that than I am, you know, going high press, man-to-man, all of a sudden you lose one duel, one second ball, and all of a sudden, like I mentioned, you know, it's Salah Nunez running at, you know, two guys in the back line. It's just like, this, this is like the opportunity that Liverpool feasts on. I don't want that to happen. I do not want Liverpool to beat me at Liverpool's game. If Liverpool beats me at a different game, fine. But Liverpool cannot beat me at that game. Fair, fair. So I guess it's about trade-offs then. About, you know, wanting to trade off the transitions for settled play. Fair, fair. I, I, yeah, I think there is obviously... Um, I, I mean, I echo everything that's been said. There's obviously an element that... Arsenal are this team that are extremely good out of possession um, and as you opened this segment saying um, Liverpool a team who don't have tremendously um, good build-up principles I'd say or, or uh, refined build-up principles yeah. to the same extent as perhaps other teams are so I, I mean I don't at all expect us to sit off in a low block um, I think there will be uh, moments in the game that where we do try and catch you off guard. I think we've already seen this season um, against, who is it, but Brighton, I think the Bournemouth game, Liverpool have been caught out in those moments where they've passed it to one of the pivots um, and a team's jumped into that high-pressing phase. Yeah. So I do expect some of those in-between moments, as it were. Um, but it is, yeah, a, a game of, of trade-offs because ultimately, like John said, I think transition situations, fake transition situations are those moments where Liverpool are the most dangerous when their attack is going to attack space. Uh, we've had two questions from um, followers of the pod with regard to the Liverpool game. The first one is from Shabab Hussein asking, how do we control or contain Trent? And tactically, what should we do to contain his threats? Yeah, I think I'll quickly um, butt in. I think, I think, yeah, I think that's why I asked the, the, the question to Lorcan and John because I think for me, 
when I, if you want to control Trent, I think obviously, essentially, you have to try to funnel play away from him in the build-up. You know, maybe um, try to push play towards Simicast, who is, yeah, he's definitely a liability. I think by stopping Trent, just don't allow the ball to get to Trent in moments when you can. When he gets the ball, I think obviously you definitely have to have someone stop him from turning and facing. Um, that's in the build-up phase. And I think, I think, in my opinion, I think in the build-up phase is probably the only phase where you can maybe, um, you know, systematically, you know, okay, cool, make sure that when he gets the ball here, you... But I think once you once we get to the second phase, third phase, and, you know, I, I think that's when we become... That's when Liverpool become a lot more fluid. I think it then becomes very hard for Arsenal. Um, I think... I assume Zimchenko will be starting in that uh, left back spot, uh, and and obviously I have to um, be honest. I, I do think that our um, right hand side rotations are probably the best the best bit of our of our attacking dynamics. I think that should be something to look at. Um, but yeah, for Arsenal to stop Trent, I I don't think um, when it gets to the second third phase. I I think obviously you can you know try things but I don't think when you get to that phase to those phases I, I, I think it's not prey but it's pretty much you got to be on your game and just be alert on when he gets the ball essentially <laughs> yeah yeah Sam I, I agree with what you're saying and I think for me you know it's it's the cliche that like you know you can't stop him but you can only hope to contain him um, and as you mentioned I think the further Liverpool gets up the pitch is, is more when I worry about them um, and especially with the amount of fluidity, as you mentioned, and then Trent, you know, takes so much responsibility as well in that fluidity and he can really just pop up anywhere. And I was also going to say another guy who can kind of do that. I don't know if he's going to be healthy is Tiago. And if both of them are on the field at the same time, then I start to get concerned a little bit, even though I do trust us a lot. But if he somehow makes a surprise comeback for the, for like, you know, a 45 minute cameo or a 30 minute cameo, like he did last year. It's it's I'm gonna be worried. So I, I don't know what his status is. I'm hoping we won't see him on Saturday. But but yeah, I think it once once you get up the pitch, then I start worrying because then that's when he can pick out passes. He can switch play. Although even though Diaz has been struggling a lot this year, so maybe I welcome that because I think White can handle it. But there are going to be moments with where he's going to get the ball and be able to run at the defense, and then that that's when when you get when Liverpool can get us. And then I think we're we're getting to the end, so I'm going to ask the last question, and this is from Naf Torrance, and he's kind of given us a scenario type of question, where he says Arsenal are guaranteed to score one goal next week at Anfield, but you don't know if or how many goals Liverpool score. Do you take that now? I think I'm going to go first to Lorcan and then to um, John. So Lorcan, what would you would you take the one goal at Anfield? Uh, honestly, no. I feel somewhat confident that we don't drop points in this one I, I wouldn't uh, sorry don't lose this one um, I wouldn't count a point as two points dropped for this one uh, so I'm going to say no and maybe that's a bit counterintuitive because Liverpool have just been held to an 0-0 draw at home against United and we're extremely good out of possession as we covered but no I, I don't think so I I, I it's a that that's interesting. I kind of take. I kind of take. I think I take the one goal. I'm not gonna lie with the, with the feeling that we could. Obviously, it won't be easy, and I really wish we had Tommy for this match for for reasons that um that Sam touched on. But I, I would take. I would take the one goal and and back us to not concede. Yeah, 
no, I mean, I think that's probably the the sensible answer. I just kind of get the feeling that if Liverpool have a good day, they might score two. Um, in which case, obviously, one goal wouldn't be enough. So I don't know. I, I back us. Um, it's it's obviously a running joke that Arteta, with enough time to prepare, is is just so good at for these individual big game matchups. Um, so no, I I would I would let us. I'm I'm confident in our ability to control the flow of the match counter to, you know, how last year's game unfolded at the Anfield where we completely, I mean, we were playing, as John was saying, we were playing some of our best football and then it seemed to be a complete psychological block and, and we went into um, a settled shape. But yeah, I, I would I would take our chances. John, John, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I, I'm with Lorcan. I, I absolutely not. Um, I like like Lorcan said. I think in possession we're actually going to be pretty strong. Um, you know, I watched the City game and I saw, you know, it, it's simple things just like circulation. You know, Frice drops alongside Saliba, enticing jumps from the interiors. You can isolate the pivot, play around it. I think that we're going to have a lot of success progressing the ball, creating you know those fake transitions the other way. Um, then the award does become, like I said, the basketball game, but. I think we will, in my eyes, I think we're guaranteed to score a goal. I don't think there's really any way that we don't score at least one. So starting from that point, it's just logical that if we're going to score at least one, I'm not going to cap it because then we could potentially score two or we could score three or we could score you know, however many. Um, and then on the other hand, I don't think we're going to keep a clean sheet. I, I think we might put in a really solid defensive display, but... It always seems to happen that something funny, something weird, you know, that, that opening goal last year at Anfield for Liverpool, I shouldn't say opening, but their first goal of the game was just like out of nowhere and then it's a cross and Henderson like tries to stick a foot out and then all of a sudden it's at Salah's feet from, from two yards out and he's not going to miss that. So there's always just something that happens. So I'll say, you know what, if it's 1-1, it ends up being 1-1, but I'd like to have a chance at winning the game as well. And Samuel, if I had to pose you the same question, so Arsenal are guaranteed to score one goal next week, but not more and not less, would you take that? <sighs> that's a that's a very tough question. I should say that I wouldn't. I should say that I wouldn't take that, but I am too bad. I am in a very pessimistic um, moment right now with Liverpool. Um, I do think that Arsenal will. Uh, probably outclass us and beat us quite comfortably. I think. I think they will have a plan for our transitions, and I think once you, once you can, uh, like work around that, I think Liverpool are pretty much done. And so I think uh, if Arsenal could only score one goal, would I take that? <sighs> I wouldn't take that, but. Uh, no, no, no. I wouldn't take that, but... Wait, is the question... So, would I take losing 1-0 to Arsenal? Is that... No, no, no. So, the question is that you know that Arsenal are going to score one goal. So, basically, it's do you back... But but Arsenal won't score more than that. So, basically, the question is do you back Liverpool to score at least twice? Or at least once, I guess. Uh, no, no. I don't... I don't because yeah, when I look historically at our games thus far, uh, Fulham, Sheffield United, Crystal Palace, we have, and even United as well. I think if Arsenal score and they set up that that tight, compact mid block, I don't, I don't think it'll it'll happen. I think you know the crowd will get frustrated. Yeah, so if Arsenal score one goal, 
No, I don't buy Liverpool to score two goals. No. Sorry to all the fans out there. I'm not. I don't hate my club. I. 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 I <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Okay, perfect. I think with that, we're going to end this segment because we still have a quick roundup of the Champions League and preview for the Champions League to do. But Samuel, it was so good having you on. I've been waiting to have you on um, Potshot for ages, to be honest. So to finally get you on, even just for a small segment, has been awesome. And it's been great just listening in um, on all three of you having this conversation. So yeah, Sam, where can people find you? And I know that you have your own podcast that you've been doing. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, but yeah, thank you guys for inviting me on, uh, Logan, Alex, John. Uh, I listen to the Potter podcast, so yeah, it's a privilege to be here. Um, and yeah, people can find me, um, on Twitter, Samuel AP on one underscore. Um, you can also find me on Spotify. In fact, on all podcast streaming platforms, uh, that would be Samuel AP. Um, and yes, I have podcasts, I have podcasts where I talk about Liverpool. Um, and so yeah, yeah, just c- come through right now. I'm not, um, consistent, but I'm coming, so just bear with me, guys. Um, but yeah, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Um, and yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, and I hope I'll be back soon. And yeah, yeah, absolutely, we need to get you back on. All right, man, thank you guys so much, and I'll see you guys later. Cheers, cheers, see ya. Um, and we'll be back just right after a short break to yeah, wrap up the last part of the pod. And welcome back. All right, let's get into it. Now that we've handled Brighton review, Liverpool preview, let's just quickly speak about something else that happened in the last week. Obviously, there was the last game that we played versus PSV. I don't think we're going to get into that too much, but I am interested in both looking over the our UCL group, you know, overall, and then maybe looking forward to, obviously, we've been drawn versus Porto, maybe some thoughts on that. Um, but yeah, let's start with you, John. What were, what were your thoughts on our Champions League group um, general reflections and, and takeaways? Yeah, in, in my eyes, honestly, I don't think it could have gone much better. Obviously, you look at the Lens game and, you know, maybe you wish you had that one back, but you can't win every game. Um, it's never going to happen. Lens, we're, we're really up for that one, the, the, the press and the compactness. And, and I don't need to go into it any further. I think I think we know what we got in that one. It, was, it wasn't our best display either, but finishing with what 13 points won the group with the game to spare. So you didn't really even have to worry about last week. Uh, aggregate score of 12 to zero at home is absolutely ridiculous. If that continues in the knockout stages, I would have my ticket for Wembley right now. Like I'm, I'm there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, positive signs. I think looking, looking ahead, I, I would be excited, but you know, knockouts are a different animal to the group stage. Logan. Yeah, I, I'd echo that. It's we joint third best goals scored in the competition, joint second best goals allowed in the competition. I don't have underlying numbers, which are probably better. Um, and by far the best goal difference in the competition. Um, not the most points in the group, but I think our group was probably deceptively difficult. Like I know we were obviously the, the favourites and nothing short of first place would have been, a, or anything short of first place would have been a disappointment. But it was three. It was three teams that we had to like really take seriously, um, and obviously the last game that we played was with a which we drew was with a very weak squad for good reasons or fairly weak squad. Um, so yeah, I'm. I, I know we talked about it before, Alex. Both of 
you and I were kind of saying that we didn't want to be this like big club mentality, but I, I kind of was like, <laughs> I did have that big club mentality throughout the group stages as much as I relished being back in the Champions League. I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm waiting for the, the knockout rounds. Um, I can't say too much about Porto, I, um, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I know it's a, a club that we need to take seriously, whose manager is kind of lauded on the timeline um, whenever I do see them discussed. So yeah, I'm, I'm feeling confident. Um, I think stylistically as well, it's much more end to end, um, irrespective of how good Porto will be at defending transitions, I'm sure. Um, which is something that benefits our wingers in, in getting inside. And we did see that a lot in the group stages. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to watch Champions League football as much as to see us hopefully win those, these, you know, these fixtures. Yeah, I can't say I offer any analysis when it comes to Porto here, but they were the one of the, like maybe the one weird team that I really hoped that we didn't get just because I have a weird not even superstition something weird feeling about like Arteta and Portuguese teams now so yeah. th that's my one thing I was, I was kind of hoping we wouldn't get Porto I know that their coaches and that the coaching culture there's it's kind of pragmatic in a, in a sense that I think I can do un undo Arteta um maybe to add some rationale to it so they do kind of scare me but I mean it, it's again another one that we should be winning they were playing um John I know no, I was just going to say they were playing when they played Fabio Vieira in that latter end of the season. I know they were playing him in a double pivot of a four four two. So that just speaks to how yes. pragmatic they are because that guy can, you know, that guy's not. <laughs> That's true. And they were playing Vitinha in the same. Actually, no, to be fair, I did watch a little bit of them at, at that time. And Vitinha or Fabi was often a, a choice between the two um, when Lyon played them at least. But yeah, John, I know you watched a little bit of Porto just just to get a, a get a taste of what we're in for. Um, so, is there anything we need to look out for? Yeah, and, and, and the word is the right word. Like <clears throat> between between the like to, to break the, the fourth wall here between like the six hours of the Champions League draw and us recording this this podcast, I like found time for for ten minutes just to, to see what was going on. So I looked at their their home game against Barcelona. This is the level um, you can expect but, from Potshot in terms of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I mean the the pragmatism I think is that that's the the phrase that 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 fits them best. I mean it's the four four two, they'll shift to a, a five three two when it gets when the ball goes deeper, um, which in some ways can be good, in some ways is also not good. Um, they do press high at times, but you know probably will be hesitant to jump to Raya unless they really think they can get to him because they want to maintain compactness, blocking passing lanes as opposed to trying to to jump and win the ball. Um, and then, you know, from from in possession, I think it's it's pretty standard. You know, uh, I think Romario Barrow on the right wing moves inside and then has an overlap from right back. Uh, there's some fluidity with Eustachio, uh, who plays alongside Varela on the double pivot. He can rotate with whoever is the left-sided winger or the striker, because it's still at Medi Tarami, and I know he's can sometimes be a handful, and so there will be that aerial threat, but I do trust Saliba and Gabriel there. Um, I don't really know if I have a lot else. I, I literally just looked at like what, what the structures were going to be, um, because obviously 10 minutes is nowhere near enough to, to decipher all the principles. Just generally, I was happy to, to draw Porto, unlike, unlike Alex. I, I wanted Copenhagen, but I think in Champions League, where it's so transition, I mean, shouldn't say so transition focused, but it can be end to end and it can be players deciding games as opposed to, you know, teams and structure and, you know, all of that. 
I'd rather face a, a well-structured team that isn't as talented than like Real Madrid, who even when Carlos like a sweep on the touchline and they're doing whatever they want without the ball, um, you know, they still have the transition threat and you're always worried that that something can happen in just an instant. And that's what you want to avoid. No, I think rationally it is the, it is the good it is a good outcome having having Porto rather than I wanted Napoli, and I think it it, it feeds back into sort of Lorcan's sentiment that we spoke about is that I think I still want the prestige as my first you know our first season back, but I think rationally maybe it'd be nicer to have the prestige come in the quarters, semis, and hopefully finals. Um, yeah, I have a couple of questions. Are there any weaknesses that you think are a source of concern um, from the round of sixteen onwards? Yeah, I can answer this one. I think this isn't just based on these six games in the group stage, but just something that we've kind of seen generally from Arsenal this season last, is that we are susceptible to a crazy moment every once in a while. You know, Tomiyasu against Manchester City, and then, as you mentioned, your superstition with Arteta against Portuguese managers. That goal last year against Sporting at home, that, you know, like, where does that even come from? Like, you know, the stuff that can happen... I will say though we've shown a, a, a you know a willingness to battle and continue to fight, but moments like that can be decisive, and especially in something that's so game state, you know, impactful. With, you know, Champions League only you know, it's 180 minutes over two legs, so a goal really can change everything. So that would be my biggest concern. I think otherwise we are actually very well equipped for the Champions League in terms of squad construction and style of play, and, you know, everything. So yeah, yeah I I agree with that. Um... Alex, at, at the in the in the preseason, we were talking about how we actually thought we there's a good chance that we could go far in this competition, um, which might have surprised a few. I don't, I don't know. To be fair, um, my main honestly, my main concern from a logical perspective is injuries. Um, I know Timber's meant to be coming back. Well, you know, in the nose and stuff, but Timber could be coming back um, in time for this tie, which is, I think, scheduled for the 21st and then the, of February and then the 12th of March. Um, I know Timber's going to be enrolled for it, at least. Um, and if we go past that, and Timber should be playing the the, the games that follow from it. Um, and hopefully Tommy Asu's back, etc. But the, again, we've talked about how players like Zinchenko, Tommy Asu, Partey, who you know, we hope not to really rely on um, are injury prone and this is a kind of taxing part of the season where the games come thick and fast um, so there's that element but yeah like, like John said from a stylistic point of view I think we actually quite, are quite well set up yeah I think stylistically it's it's without a doubt I think it I've been impressed by how we've managed to keep up in the league more so than having any worries of our management of like these high variance affairs because I think we managed to dominate a control aspect so well that it really comes down to like as John pointed out hoping we don't have a bozo moment individually rather than getting exploited um you know qualitatively or structurally right I think with that we've got a pod um thank you so much for coming on John it was awesome having you it was an absolute pleasure perfect and thank you as always Lorcan for coming on of course uh, if you want to drop your at to, uh, John where people can find you uh, yeah so for anyone who wants to find my now like two months and active tr- Twitter page maybe we'll come back soon uh, there's lots of factors for why I have not been tweeting but uh, I'm at inverted FB uh, but the second E is replaced with an R so it's I-N-B-R-R 
D. Um, I guess it's actually the first D. Um, FB. Um, yeah, you can find me there. I have not tweeted in a while. Maybe, maybe sometime soon. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that, but yeah. And you'll be able to find all of that in the description below as well. Please do rate us if you've enjoyed listening on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It really does help. And you can follow us at Podshots, the description, as with all of our ads, it's in the description. And thank you to James Blake for the intro and outro music as always. And yeah, we'll see you again after Christmas. Thanks very much.